Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast, a podcast that aims to inspire, engage and connect social workers with other social workers and allied health professionals doing interesting and amazing things across the world. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Inside Social Work podcast. My guest today is one of Australia's leading lights in managing anxiety. An educational leader, Dr. Jodie Richardson supports parents and teachers to change their relationship with anxiety, dial it right down and light the way for their children and students to do the same. Jodie is a professional speaker, supporting whole school communities around Australia, the best-selling author of the books Anxious Kids and Anxious Mums, host the pop, host of the popular podcast well hello anxiety and mum of two i'm really excited to have jody uh share with us some of her thoughts and insights into anxiety and how we can manage uh, our anxiety a little bit better or differently and some tools that she uses in her own life before we get started i wanted to let people know that this is the last couple of weeks to book your tickets for mental health first aid so if you work with young people if you're a teacher a parent a youth worker this is these are essential skills um, i really wish that everybody had these skills uh, to identify signs and symptoms of anxiety depression eating disorders psychosis substance misuse i am running two of them in the next few months one face-to-face in Melbourne in September on the 9th and 16th and then one online which has some online modules that you complete in your own time and then three live components broken up into two and a half hours so you don't get that zoom fatigue uh, in October and that can be accessed from anywhere in Australia so check out the show notes or head over to my website thetherapyhub.com.au under the training tab I really hope to see you there there are still some spaces available Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast. In today's uh, episode, I have Dr. Jodie Richardson with me as a guest. Welcome, Jodie. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're not a social worker, but we'll allow it. Totally fine. Uh, could, you, <laughs> could you share with the audience a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do? Yes, I'm super passionate about helping people really move their anxiety out of the way. I have lived with anxiety since I was four. And I'm a little bit older than that now. We're looking at 44 years on. And what I know is that we don't get rid of anxiety. We learn to change our relationship with it. We learn to dial it down. And so my work really allows me to do that in a number of different ways. I'm a professional speaker. I do a lot of work in schools, talking to staff, uh, developing them with their professional development around anxiety and also helping them with their own well-being and mental health. Also talking to students on occasion, more so lately, and talking to parents. I've written two books, co-authored Anxious Kids with Michael Gross and wrote Anxious Mums in Lockdown, which was one of the most anxiety-provoking things I've ever done. And I also have my own podcast, which is called Well, Hello, Anxiety. That's an amazing um, array of different options, all focusing on anxiety as the kind of key mental health challenge or difficulty there. Yeah, yeah, predominantly anxiety. But uh, last night, for example, I did a presentation for a local council around 
moving the winter blues. And so really, I guess I, I do love to focus on anxiety, but also do support communities with mental health in general and their well-being. Wonderful. And your background is in psychology? No, my background is in education and in physiology. Oh, I didn't realise that. Yes, yes. And so I also have training in behavioural therapy and the science of happiness. I've done a lot of a lot of study. However, my PhD was in physiology. And one of the most interesting things about anxiety is that it is physiological. So we think of it as being, it's often called a mental illness. It's a psychological challenge. There is a lot of worry, but so much of what we experience when it comes to anxiety is about what we feel and the biochemistry. I was a chemistry major uh, as well as an education major. And so I really do feel so privileged to be able to bring together my love of learning and teaching with my science background, my passion for mental health, um, with you know my own experience of mental health as a, a child, a teenager, a, an adult, and as a parent. And uh, yeah, use all of that to really support people. Well, that's, yeah, it's so true, the physiological component. Um, and I think we noticed that a lot in lockdown where anxiety and stress kind of fused and people's just bodies were responding um, mm. without maybe even awareness of a conscious thought, just a really heightened response. Mm. One of the, um, having kind of browsed through your socials and your website, one of the things that really stood out to me is the tagline on your website. It's not a choice, but it doesn't have to take over either. Can you tell me more a bit more about what what that means? Yes, of course. Look, anxiety is so human. It's important to firstly say that we all experience anxiety and we experience it every day. Whether there's a podcast you're recording and you're anxiously wondering if your family are going to come home and make too much noise. <laughs> Case in point. Um, I was going to say, that's just a hypothetical, right? It's just a hypothetical. <laughs> yeah, I'm not worried um, that the dog's going to bark. It's really fine. <laughs> so we know anxiety is a completely normal human emotion and yet we attach a lot of extra meaning to it. We can experience disappointment or frustration or even sadness and not Think of it as being a huge and overwhelming problem if it comes and goes with normal daily challenges or life challenges. If we, if we lose a family pet, of course, we're going to feel sad. And that's a really normal reaction, a really normal experience of emotions in uh, response to what, what the context is. When it comes to anxiety, we experience anxiety for lots of reasons and anxiety really shows up around what we care about. And so it's a fundamental response when our brain detects a threat. So it's not something we have conscious control over. And for those of us who struggle with anxiety as an ongoing challenge, I have an anxiety disorder, we can become anxious for no reason, as well as in response to the normal things that cause anxiety, like doing important things like speaking in front of audiences or going for a job interview or catching up with someone we haven't seen in a while. And so anxiety can show under those circumstances and usually will settle after those circumstances pass. For other people, anxiety hangs around. And so it's not really a choice, but for a lot of people, it can get in the way of making choices and doing important things in life. 
and it doesn't have to when you've got an understanding and you've got a toolkit of strategies to manage your anxiety and when you've got a new perspective on your anxiety so you can change the way you think about it then it doesn't have to get in the way and it doesn't have to take over that's so beautiful and you've partly answered my next question um where you know we often see and I work a lot with adolescents as well and the improvement in mental health literacy is amazing I mean they have vocabulary for things I didn't understand um when I was younger Mm. and one of the misunderstandings it's kind of what you spoke about but I noticed that people struggle to differentiate the feeling or the emotion of anxiety and an anxiety disorder so how can people start working through or figuring out if what they're experiencing is what you said it's that sort of shows up because it's something we care about or it's for a specific event that makes sense right yes and when is it something more that might need some help or support yes a really good way to think about it is to consider how much of an impact it's having on your life or having on the life of somebody that you work with or somebody that you care about because anxiety comes and goes it's very normal for us to dip in and out of fight or flight during the day even if you notice that a door slams you might find your heart rate accelerates you might startle and then your brain quickly realizes oh that was just a door slamming there's there's no threat to my safety here and the anxiety and the signs and symptoms settle down Um, when it comes to anxiety that might be diagnosed as a disorder it's because the anxiety is frequent extreme uh, and it's really getting the way of activities of daily life being able to go to work, being able to go to school, being able to catch up with friends or take on a new sport or even join in a sport that you love, being able to do tests at school and exams, all of the things that are, you know, some some of those are stressful, but, you know, the normal parts of daily life, if it's really getting in the way. Um, one of the things that we've experienced here in our family over the past 12 months was our daughter and she's fine now she's it's as if it was never a problem but we had a really drawn out uh, challenge with her gut health and after a few months of really serious gut problems and missing a lot of school and in fact she missed most of term one in this year 2022 she developed a lot of headaches which we finally determined were very um, anxiety stress and tension related But we had MRIs, we had gastroscope, we had abdominal ultrasounds, we've tried lots of different medications and lots of different specialists. And what we found was once the symptoms were starting to respond to treatment and things were starting to resolve, getting back to doing the things that she'd missed out on was really hard because she'd felt so removed and she had this constant overarching Uh, idea that what if I don't feel well what if I start to feel sick these what if questions that are so normal with anxiety and I could see what was happening in my child who's never had any challenges with anxiety in the past but I also knew that this was something that we would move through and that now that she is back at school and she's reintegrated back socially and with her sports with her friends with her classmates that this is all settling down and we didn't need to seek professional help 
I was obviously well placed to help her. So that was a really big challenge for our family, that, but one that we've moved through together. Um, another friend's daughter has a terrifying phobia of chickens and we have chickens. And so <laughs> we always say to her, look, the chickens are locked in the, in the pen. They've got lots of room to move around, not locked in their hutch, but locked in a, in a, a large area, which is their pen. They can't get out. And that's not getting in the way of her daily life. There's really no need for her to seek help for that because it's not getting in the way. And so these are the things to consider is how much is it affecting what you can do day to day, what your clients can do day to day, um, what your loved ones can do, how much of a barrier and a stop sign is it putting up for them? And is it really stopping them from living a really rich and full life? Such a beautiful answer to that and so rich in what you're saying around you know, it's frequent, persistent, long-lasting is when it can require help looking at the um, impact. You know, if you're scared of boats but you never have to go on a boat, it's probably not the biggest deal in the world. Yes. Yeah, um, it is. It's really, it's so much avoidance that comes with anxiety. Anxiety does not feel good. We get afraid of how we feel if we don't have a good appreciation for what it feels like for us. That's why the understanding is so important. And to have a willingness to go, I feel like this, I know what this is. I know why this is showing up, but I'm going to bring this with me as I do what matters to me is the approach that I really love to, to, to teach and to talk through and share and support. Um, and other parents or professionals in the situation I was in with our daughter probably would have benefited from seeking help but I was really pleased that I this being my profession uh, and me knowing so many strategies and tools and and certainly I would reach out for help if I needed it um, and I also like to say to people that seeking help is just such a beautiful thing to do and there is a lot of help available there is a little bit of a wait under some circumstances but um, it can only be support that comes from that and if you're in doubt or you're questioning the mental health of someone that you care about or yourself, certainly start by asking the question at your GP and getting a little bit of extra help and um, a different perspective on what's happening. Because sometimes when we're anxious, we can lose our own perspective on what, what we need and what's best in that moment. Oh, absolutely. And I think you're right. That's maybe just realising that you don't have to... I mean, you, you live with it, as you were saying, for some people, but you don't have to, it doesn't have to consume you that there are ways to live alongside it and maybe manage it differently. Yes. As you were speaking, I was wondering what your thoughts are on, on how uh, either parents or educators can find this balance, in particular working with children where they want to push them past their comfort zone to achieve you know, and I think about, I remember an activity we did when I was a school counsellor on year seven camp, there's like this big pole that you climb up and then you like fly fox down. And, you know, mm. for some kids, it was like paralyzingly terrifying and some needed a good push and encouragement and they did it and they were ex so excited. Like, How do people find this balance of not letting someone Oh, and I hate that this word's used, but like get away with it or be manipulated into like not doing this oral presentation or sitting an exam. Mm. And when is it appropriate to stay firm on some of those things and say, you know, you have to, 
it'll benefit you to learn to sit through that discomfort because if you avoid the oral presentation in year seven year eights gets harder you're not like without how do you balance that Mm. it's it's a (laughs) it, it is a it's a challenging situation to find oneself in oneself in I should say when you are faced with a child or young person or anyone really who's really unwilling and it can the the context can differ depending on sort of how rigid uh, a young person or a person has become in terms of their thinking and and that that's really what can happen is that there, there can be this uh, pattern of behavior whereby it's going to make me feel these awful feelings I'm going to have these thoughts of dying of breaking my legs keeping in line with the example of that that very tall pole uh, that that is uh, you know seems to be a rite of passage on on school camp for so many and so when the anxiety starts to bubble up and and boil over there can be these what if questions these catastrophic thinking of the worst case scenario and all of the physical feelings that come with anxiety that can be just so horrible to experience that everything in the brain and the body is shouting don't do it and so I think the first thing for us as supporters of anxious people to know is that when the anxiety is really firing up in this way it's a very real threat that the brain has detected and that the person will be experiencing everything that we are designed to do to keep ourselves safe because they're they're also not able when anxiety is in full flight, the part of the brain that helps make really rational decisions about choices that we're making, do I or don't I climb the pole, that part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, becomes unavailable. And so a person who's highly, highly anxious is not in a position to be able to make considered rational decisions in that moment. And so problem solving can come later. So it's worth just recognizing that a highly anxious person is really suffering. And one of the things that we talk about, there's so many ways I could answer this question. We we want to develop flexibility around their thinking, which can take time. And so a highly anxious student is probably going to be uh, set up for failure if expected to do the full experience of climbing the pole and taking the flying fox swing down. So one of the ways that we can do it is we can talk to people about their willingness to experience the discomfort that comes with anxiety. How willing are you? And that will be uh, something that is balanced with, well, how important it is, is it to this person to accomplish this challenge that's before them? And so where there's not where there's a lot of care about something, there can be a lot of anxiety, but also a lot of inner drive to to want to help take the anxiety along. So under these circumstances, what I really recommend is having having a conversation with the young person, with the person who's really struggling to say, I can see that this is really hard for you. And I imagine that you're having a lot of physical sensations related to this fear and anxiety, probably a lot of thoughts. Let's work together to arrive at an agreement as to what you're willing to tolerate, how far you're willing to take things. And I can support you to 
nudge at the end of your bound at the edge of your boundary, go a little bit into that zone of discomfort, knowing that with further opportunity, we can start to shift those boundaries further and further out over time. So I know of one young man who went to camp and it was a huge achievement for him to climb the pole and then climb back down. That was a massive achievement. And we really want to set anxious kids up to succeed. And so being able to arrive at an agreement, right? Well, what would feel comfortable? Okay, well, going to that second rung, I'm okay with that because I climb the fence to go to my neighbours every day and it's about that height. Fantastic. Okay, so that feels comfortable. So let's think about maybe going to that next step. What would that feel like? What do we expect might happen? The heart's going to race. The breathing's going to change. You might feel tense. You might feel sick. And there's reasons to explain all of those. And so helping a child or a young person look at where's my boundary for comfort? Where can I comfortably push myself, I'm using inverted commas, push myself sort of into my zone of discomfort and how excited will I be to have achieved this step and how can we celebrate beyond that? So I I know there's not one answer to this, but it's about communication and about helping a young person see that the anxiety feels pretty awful, but what's worse is not being able to do the things in life that are presented to us that can really enrich our lives and give us a real sense of achievement and accomplishment and help us to learn that we can feel a bit anxious and we can still do what we really want to do anyway. Yeah, that's such a beautiful answer. I think people don't realise that it's not the size of the threat. It's not an ob- objective measure. It's um, in what I tell some young people I work with, it's, it's like the smoke alarm going off. And it doesn't know that you've burnt toast or if the house is on fire, the physiological response is still the same. Yes. Yes. I love that metaphor. And can I just tell you, I took the kids rock climbing and I love indoor rock climbing. And we're at a point now where the kids are 12 and 14 and they, uh, I worked with our son who's 14. He was my ballet partner. So he was the one that had the rope (laughs) through his harness to keep me safe. And I had a hundred percent trust And my daughter worked with her friend who she took and they supported each other beautifully. When I did one of the climbs where I used the automatic belay, so you clip yourself in. Oh, that one's really scary at the start. I've done that before. (laughs) Yes. And I climbed and climbed and climbed and climbed. And it it was at least two (laughs) to three stories high. I was so proud of myself. But when I got to the top, I thought, I have to put my trust in this mechanism I'd had all my trust in Hunter and I had felt, you know, really comfortable, certain level of anxiety because you are climbing very, very high and it's, mm-hmm. it's a challenge. But there was a moment where I realised I do not have the strength or the, you know, the endurance to be able to climb back down. There is no way I can climb. There is only one day, one way to get down. And I was having what if thoughts, what if it, it falters, what if, what if. And I just, I just had to breathe. And recognise that I'd watched 20 people before me use this same piece of equipment and that the chances were it was going to be okay, (laughs) I just had to let go. So that was me saying yes to a huge challenge. And my anxiety, my my anxiety was very high. I just had to bring it with me because there's no other way to get down. (laughs) So no one's immune, even those people like me who have lots of tools in our toolkit. Um, It's just about thinking about it differently. It helps a lot. 
Mm, absolutely. And it neatly ties into sort of my next uh, couple of questions is what are some of the your top you know, three self-help tools for managing anxiety? What are some really simple and effective things people can do? Mm. My three, my top three would probably be, and I'll elaborate briefly, breathing, grounding, and moving. So breathing helps to show this part of our brain that sounds the alarm that we are safe. We want to activate the vagus nerve through diaphragmatic breathing. So you've most likely talked about that before, really activating the diaphragm, really using that to breathe fully and deeply using our belly and exhaling and lengthening our exhale. Breathing through our nose if we possibly can, unless you're congested. And that will only make you anxious if you're trying to breathe through a congested nose. So please don't try. So breathing is really powerful. And in an anxious moment or when we know we're being presented with an opportunity where anxiety might arise, bringing breathing into your daily practice and then drawing it, drawing on it when anxiety might bubble up or when you feel anxious uh, is a really beautiful strategy and a very, very powerful skill practice every day so you're not trying to do an olympic lift and you've never <laughs> lifted a weight before when it comes to grounding this is about present moment attention and awareness and i share and love a beautiful grounding strategy that is called dropping anchor dr russ harris writes about this at length yep a nice can, act principle yep a nice <laughs> act principle yes and so a really lovely way to think about it is the idea of we can't control the storm around us, but we can we can calm ourselves in the midst of the storm. And so a way to do that would be to notice the connection of your feet with the floor, bring your attention to your body and, and notice how you feel, notice how your arms feel by your side, notice how your clothes feel on your person, notice how you can hear different sounds around you, really coming into the present moment and using your senses to tune in and that will really settle a nervous system that is feeling a bit flighty a bit stressed and anxious and in grounding you can use a really beautiful acronym that Russ Harris created which is FACE which is F for focus on what you can control right F focus on what you can control A acknowledge what you're thinking and feeling. So this is not about distraction. We're acknowledging that we're feeling discomfort. We might be having difficult thoughts or feelings. C is come back into your body using your senses. And then E, when you're ready, engage in what's important. And the last strategy that I will talk about all day, if you let me, is about <laughs> exercise and about movement. It's a natural end to the fight or flight response. We release endorphins, which are endogenous neurochemicals which can help us feel better in our mood we also release GABA which is the neurochemical that puts the brakes on our stress response we help release muscle tension it helps with our breathing helps with mindfulness and genuinely it is profound when it comes to our mental health and of course our physical health as well yeah, beautiful. And I love what you're saying around the physiological side of movement. Like I think people get stuck that it has to be really specific types of exercise, but 
there is something in processing all of those chemicals, walking, dancing, being silly, climbing. It doesn't have to be gym or running. Like it can be so many different things that, um, that do that movement. So I love it. Breathing, grounding and movement. So accessible if you can sit with some of those, um, you know, doing something new for the first time can be really difficult. Yes, it, it can. And one of the things that I, I like to say just to add a little to that is plan and predict. Plan what you know will be good for you, especially at the moment that we're recording this, it's winter. Plan to get some winter sun each day because that'll help you produce more serotonin. And open the curtains first thing in the morning so that the sunlight can help break down the melatonin. So therefore you can stay in a really nice circadian rhythm and that your melatonin release will be earlier in the evening if we can break it down with natural light first thing in the morning. Plan when you're going to incorporate the care for yourself into your week and help young people really prioritise that as well. And predict what might come up as a barrier. Predict the thoughts and the urges that will come up oh, it's too cold, I don't want to go outside (laughs) and do that class I know I really love to do when I'm there. Uh, Predict what sensations might come up when you're trying to look after yourself through healthy eating, the urge to drive up to the milk bar and get chocolate, which I gave into the other day because the kids You've just described my whole whole morning. (laughs) The other day I just had this craving for... (laughs) For sugar and oh, the kids are always saying this. Never anything in the house because um, I, I I admit quite openly that I I am such a sweet tooth and so I make the decision at the supermarket not to have it and I have seventy eight percent cocoa chocolate that's all right. It's not great, so I won't overeat. Um, yeah. So predict the urges. Predict what might get in the way of you making the decisions that you'd like to make for your health, and um, what other barriers might get in the way uh, that that can sort of uh, derail the, the plans that you've got for yourself for your mental health yeah some really excellent tips and I, I was just laughing because this morning the alarm went off to go to the gym and I was like oh and then had to it was raining and I'm like the dog's gonna have to be walked at some point might as well do it now and then I felt fine <laughs> yes yes it's um it's very natural it's so natural to have those feelings I'm very lucky that my I do CrossFit and we book in and there's only eight places and so you're expected to you be feel there. the guilt if you've taken yeah. someone's oh, spot. You, if you cancel too close, uh, you feel like you've, especially if somebody's been waiting for a spot, you feel like you've really let people down. So, Such um, good model. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My new gym does the same thing. And so I, I set myself up from the night before, knowing that I'm full well going to hate my past self in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> In, um, in a lot of your episodes and the sort of material, like your podcast episodes, I mean, and some of the, um, you know, communications that you put out, you talk a lot about parts of your own journey with anxiety. Mm. How do you, how do you balance sharing parts of yourself and using that story or, you know, examples to highlight particular things that you're talking about um, and, you know, the boundaries of keeping parts of your personal life private like how do you navigate Mm. the self-disclosure and maintaining some privacy it's something I think about a lot and first and foremost I share 
I share in ways that I feel are age appropriate for the audience. So what I would share with parents would be very different to what I would share with, say, VCE students if I'm supporting them with exam stress. Um, I also share challenges that I have worked through myself. Uh, there was one time when I, I do recall distinctly oversharing in a presentation and feeling myself getting emotional and teary in that moment and realising in that moment that I'd, I'd shared more than I'd planned and that it was, it was a learning for me because we're always learning. And I loved what you said at the start before we hit record how you are not a perfectionist and I once was, but I'm not anymore. And, and I really forgive myself and have a lot of compassion for myself when I, when I do make decisions that don't uh, align with what I had planned and they don't happen very often or at all these days. So I, I don't share anything that's really unprocessed. And um, I share what I think is really relevant for the audience. I don't want to take the audience on a path that is going to be really triggering for people, but I also want the audience to really know and understand that when I am working with them to help them learn more, that I can give insights from very different perspectives from somebody who's lived it, uh, from somebody who knows it from the side where things can look really dark and really cloudy and really difficult. Uh, somebody who has a lot of skills now and can approach things very differently and has that professional expertise to share as well. But the other side of my consideration is with my own family. And I've got a presentation actually coming up at our daughter's primary school. <laughs> and I'm going to have to think quite carefully about what I share because when I'm with a group of strangers and she's happy for me to talk about her all day, she'd love that. That's the kind of kid she is. Um, but I also don't want to use examples that I would use about my own family in my own community. Our son, on the other hand, is very private. And whilst there are some things I know I'm okay to share because I talk so much to parents and it's really nice to share relatable stories um, and for them to know I'm human and I have my own struggles and challenges mm. as a parent. So there are a lot of considerations when it comes to what I share verbally, what I share online, what I share in terms of imagery around my own family. And um, you won't find me sharing much in terms of pictures of my family. Peter is an unwilling participant in most photos. <laughs> But he's an open book when it comes to stories as well um, because he he really feels strongly about the work that I do and wants to help me feel as though I can be uncensored in the way I talk about how we've navigated our own journey through my anxiety. And, of course, I'm careful about what I share, but he doesn't want me to have to think, oh, what would Peter think? Would Peter be okay with this? He has a lot of trust. So um, I've never been asked that question before. I really appreciate you asking me that question, um, it, it's something I think about with every podcast episode um, and every presentation. And that for those listening, she knew the question was coming. <laughs> so we did it. I didn't <laughs> blindside her with this. But I think it is an important um, thing to think about as more people um, position themselves on different social media channels. You know, as consumers, we like to work with people we know, like, and trust. And whether it's as a speaker, as a therapist, I find that um, 
people I work with want a bit of a sprinkle of truth. They don't want to feel like they then have to hold space for you because you're the traumatized therapist or the, the presenter sharing too much, but having stories that can sort of punctuate your presentation can be really helpful. And I think it's interesting to see how that fluctuates over time. So I was really curious mm. to, to hear more about someone who has a lot of um, speaking work and presenting work and the podcast, how you, you think about that. So I think it's mm. really, it sounds really considered and measured and also relying on you having done work on certain parts of those bits in private to then share some of that struggles and the problem days where you're like look I work in the anxiety space and sometimes I still get it wrong I know I should yes. do this 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 and this and instead I eat the block of chocolate <laughs> Up and try. Like, exactly exactly yes so you're exactly spot on because none of us get it right all the time we don't and uh and so I think other people appreciate that because if you don't share your uh, foibles and your vulnerabilities and your own mistakes then I think you're unrelatable and I love that's what I love about ACT is that I worked with a therapist myself who was not an ACT-based therapist I, I, I didn't even know what acceptance and commitment therapy was and he over the 10 or 12 years we worked together on and off I learned little tidbits about his life only a handful and because it was a very different type of therapy. Whereas in ACT therapy, we, not that I work one-on-one -on -one with clients, but we very much take the standpoint that, as you would know this metaphor, I'm climbing my own mountain and I can see where you are in your mountain with a very different perspective than you can because you're on it. Doesn't mean I ain't climbing my own. Doesn't mean I don't have my own struggles and my own challenges as well. And so, um, yeah, I really love, I really love that perspective and I, it's one of the reasons I love ACT so much. Yeah, I really do. Um, it's one of the modalities that I work with and it's, it's so fitting for anxiety, especially something that is um, for some people with generalised anxiety that is a lifelong, um, I guess, feeling that they manage. Yes. Trying to outthink it or run away from it doesn't help. Um, no. And then looking at those award uh, towards moves and away moves is a really helpful way of framing it. So if those listening are interested, there was an episode, I think in 2020, I'll put a link in the show notes with um, uh, Louise Hayes around ACT. And that was quite, quite lovely. So people can Oh, I interviewed out. Louise as well. Yeah, she's amazing, isn't she? Oh, I'd love to yeah, I'll listen to that. <laughs> um, so I mentioned your podcast earlier. It, great name. Well, Hello Anxiety. <laughs> Through all the interviews you've conducted as someone who knows a lot about the physiological bits of anxiety in your own journey, is there anything that you learned as a host or that anything that really surprised you um, that you didn't, you hadn't learned in your sort of either own personal journey or academic um, you know, education component? Yes. One of the, one of the guests that I had, Olivia Arizolo, she spoke about sleep and I've read a lot about sleep, but it's certainly not my core area of expertise. There's a lot, a lot that I do know and, of course, a lot more to learn. And one of the things that she said was that if you're going to do one thing to help manage your sleep and promote better quality sleep and more sleep, it's to manage the light that you have around you. And 
that was something that I'd not heard put like that before. I understood that watching TV, having bright lights on at night, looking at devices will break down melatonin. I understood that we like sunlight, uh, especially first thing in the morning to help break down melatonin, help us wake up and start producing more serotonin. But I never thought about that as an overarching principle. And so, yeah, that was one of the things that really stood out to me and that I love sharing uh, when I'm talking about uh, sleep as something that really supports uh, good mental health as well. That's beautiful. And it's really nice to hear other um, people use metaphors or things that just land well. I think that's one of the great things about podcasting as a medium is sometimes the same, we could hear the same information in a number of different ways, but we're not either ready to hear it all or someone will say it in an analogy that works. Like it just lands differently depending mm-hmm. on where you're at, how you like to learn, what you're focusing on. So that's really beautiful. So was it choose, yeah. say it again, the light that you want around you? The, the, the number one thing that we can do to really uh, protect our sleep is manage the light around us. Yes. And not, not in terms of an aura. <laughs> It, it can it can imply that right like Matt like the people around us that bring us light or darkness well certainly so the people could around so us <laughs> it could be it could be um and look some of your listeners may be spiritual it's um it's not it's not something that is a it's a it's my, my last character strength to my mum's um how, how what's that expression uh, to my mum's disappointment, spirituality is my very last character strength, but I'm a scientist at heart, but certainly the people around us, and this was what another guest shared with me. Um, I think that was the beautiful Jessica Maguire when we were talking about the vagus nerve is that the people around us uh, co- who co-regulate with us, whether they realise it or not, have a profound influence on how we feel, how how stressed we feel, how anxious we feel, how calm we feel. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's so many powerful lessons uh, yeah. that we can learn and apply straight away. Yeah, that's so true. I was actually recently telling a parent that I work with that it takes a calm brain to calm a brain and sometimes we need to take care of ourselves to regulate, um, mm. help someone regulate because it is very physiological. So as much as people think, oh, I can hide it, nobody knows. It's, it's BS. I call bullshit because you can tell, yeah. like, even if you don't exactly know why, but you can, it's, it's like your body can feel, I can be around someone. And then I, if I start to feel like that chesty thing, I'm like, ah, oh, I think they're anxious and I'm picking up on it. Like it's contagious. It certainly is. In these it's little certain. micro expressions or these body movements or a, a rigidity or a disconnection. So. Yes. Yes. Wonderful. You are doing a lot, publishing books, doing speaking, um, the podcast, a whole bunch of stuff we probably haven't even touched on. What do you do for yourself? So what do you do when you're not helping others or educating others? Oh, see, that's just, oh, my shoulders have just dropped. Oh, um, because I feel good about the way that I look after myself and the things that I do for myself. And that, in, that includes my exercise. Um, I love to read. I am reading Leanne. I think it's I think it's pronounced Leanne Moriarty. I'm reading her book Apples Don't Fall at the moment. I love to read at night. I have booked in with a friend to go to the Peninsula Hot Springs 
next week. Um, I say yes to opportunities uh, that really light me up. I was asked by a beautiful mutual friend of ours, uh, Fee Mims, to join a basketball team or would I like to? She put a shout out on Facebook in lockdown and I said yes to that. So I am very, very busy, but a lot of what I'm doing is really filling my own cup, playing basketball, going out, doing exercise, walking the dog, seeing friends, spending time with my family, doing fun things with the kids and having time with Pete. So um, I, I'm, I don't sit down a lot. Uh, <laughs> I, love, I love one episode of a show at night on Netflix. That's usually what Pete and I will do at the end of the day. I really love that too. Um, so yeah, so that's, they're all the sorts of things that I love to do for me. And the chickens, of course, they get a mention. Oh, too. we've got the chickens, <laughs> but we've got three roosters and we, we had four <laughs> chicks. We had four chickens. One of them had chicks, the eggs hatched, two of them are roosters. So now we've got three. So it's a bit of an issue, probably something for another conversation, but, um, yeah, we do have the chickens, which are really lovely to spend time with when the roosters are behind the fence. <laughs> Thanks so much for this lovely conversation. Um, I'll put a, a link to some of the things that you mentioned in the show notes, your book, the podcast, what an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. The Inside Social Work Podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast today and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support the podcast, you can leave a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcast and feel free to join the Facebook group. It'd be great to hear from you. Have a lovely day. Bye.